My name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you here this morning as we continue through the life of David. Uh, so, uh, is anybody here watch Stranger Things? Yeah? All right. Hey, hey, I like it that you're excited. This side of the room, not so much Stranger Things. You might need to check, see what what's better on Netflix is Stranger Things than whatever you're watching. But, um, so, since you guys are excited, you know, if things get going, you know, you could give me some encouragement too. Uh, not just Stranger Things. But um, I love that show. Um, I love it because um, one of it is because it takes place in the, in the 80s. And I was born in 1980. Yes, I am that old or young, depending on your perspective. But um, <clears throat> so I'm an 80s kid, and, and a lot of the things that they do and show in the movie, I remember doing. And so <clears throat> they're like snooping around for quarters and everything, and then where are they going to go? The arcade. I remember doing that stuff. Um, I got detention once for skipping school to go play Mortal Kombat at the arcade. Um, and uh, so... Um, and, and they're, you know, they're, so they're doing that. They're really into to Ghostbusters and they're like, uh, dressing up as them. And, and I remember all of that as well. And so, uh, minor spoilers that won't wor- won't ruin the movie for you or anything like that. But in the movie, there's basically this like alternate dimension, the, this, this alternate dimension that's dark and it's evil and everything. And these kids kind of find out about this. And then, um, Later on in the story that one of these kids finds one of these kind of small creatures from that dimension. And um, it's pretty obvious that this creature is not good, right? I mean, it kind of growls at him. It doesn't like sunlight, like, hello, tip off. Um, And so you should know this. And his friends are kind of like, I don't know about this. But he's like, man, uh, he just likes it. seems so cute. And so he's like, I'm I'm just going to make it my pet. And so he takes it home and he puts it like in this little cage thing. And, and you as the viewer, you're just like, this is stupid, yeah. right? I mean, like, dude, come on, make better choices. Like, this isn't going to go so well. His friends, you know, they're like, hey, I think we should kill it. And he's like, no, I like it and everything. And he gives it a name. And, and so, um, so he starts, like, feeding it, this creature stuff. And, you know, it kind of gets bigger and everything. And his friends are more like, we got to get rid of this. And, and no, so he, take, he goes home one day. And this thing now is bigger, and it's broken out of this cage that he put it in. And he looks in the corner, and it, there it is, and it's eating his cat. And then this is the point of the story where you're like, hmm, maybe it's not so bad after all. <laughs> you know? hmm. um, maybe, it, maybe it is good. Um, okay, I'm just kidding. You know, people, your cats, you're like, oh, Rick, he doesn't like him. I don't. Um, so, um, but anyways, it's like eating his cat, and, and then it, it starts to come after him. And, and, it, and, and this is like, you're like, what? I mean, you knew this was happening. You as a viewer, you knew this was going to happen. Uh, you could see this coming from a mile away. You knew this was a terrible idea for him to take it home with him. Um, but in real life, do we kind of do the same thing? You know, it, do we have something in our life, and rather than getting rid of it, we treat this thing like a pet? We, we let it live with us, and, and when in reality, this thing is going to grow and grow, and it's going to come after us and destroy us. And so I think this will be a really helpful thing as we go through 2 Samuel 11. So go ahead and open up your Bible, 2 Samuel 11. <clears throat> and so we're going to be kind of going over verses 1 through 5. And just to let you know, the first point, first observation of verses 1 through 5, we see this progression of sin progression of sin. And so in verse 1, 
says this, In the springtime of the year, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And so in the ancient world, there was actually a season, a time, when they would, they would fight and they would have their battles. You know? So the, the rainy season is over. Things are good. Things are warmer. Let's go fight and, and, and duke it out. And so the, that's what David is supposed to be doing. And in 2 Samuel 5, they actually commend David for doing a good job of this in, in, in the past. And they say, when they are uh, anointing him king, and they say, um, they praised David and said, it was you who led us out and brought us back in. Okay, but now David's not leading. You know, he's not doing what he's supposed to. And, and, and instead, David sends everyone else. He sends his commander and he sends all of Israel. And as you go through this chapter, this is a word that's repeated a lot, this send. And, and it's kind of cooling us off of how David is using his authority, how he's using his power. And so like in chapter 9, which we talked about last week, and Austin did a great job, David uses his power and authority to send for Mephibosheth, this crippled guy, and he's like, hey, I want to show him loving and kindness. That's how David's using his authority. And now David sends others, and he's using his authority in a much darker way. Because see, David forgot something. And again in chapter 5, David knows this, and it says this, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, For the sake of God's people. So David knows, hey, God made me king, not to just make me king so I could be awesome. God made me king for his purposes. God's the point. His plan's the point, not me. And so God has given me this authority to be in service for others. But now David is using his authority and his power to serve himself. And maybe he felt like he deserved it. Maybe he was just tired. He's been fighting a lot. Maybe he just wants a break. We don't know. But he takes his eyes off of the job that God had given him to do. And now he thinks it's no longer about others, but it's about him. And also, just in this verse 1, notice what is not there. David doesn't ask God what he should do. You know, hey, hey God, should I, should I go out to war? Should I not? Nothing. He doesn't ask God. And, and isn't that the moment that we kind of start to fall, right? You know, when we don't just wake up one day and be like, hmm, I'm going to make a terrible decision today. Today's the day. I, I'm, you know what, God? Today's the day I'm just going to totally disobey you and not seek you whatsoever. I knew this day would come sometime, right? We don't usually think that, but that is what happens when we don't seek God, when we don't view him as the authority in our lives. And so... Um, Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And so, so David sent everyone else out. They're going off... To, to fight. They're doing their thing. And now he's, what's he been doing? Nothing. He's been in bed all day long. He's bored. There's nothing to do. And he, he basically, he just keeps taking these steps, these steps towards sin. 
And, and this is when we become vulnerable to sin, when we become vulnerable to temptation, when we're bored and we have a lot of time on our hands. Life is going pretty good, and we're not really pursuing anything of value, really anything of purpose. And, and so that's what David's doing. He's just taking a nap, wakes up, doing nothing. Hey, I'm just going to stroll out onto my roof real innocently. And so in the, in the ancient world, you know, because the text tells us that it's evening. And at this time, that's when people would bathe. They, they would, you know, they've done all their work um, throughout the day. Things are kind of winding down. It's time to clean up and get ready for sleep. And so this is the time that everyone would be bathing. And the place that they would be bathing at is on their roof. This way, uh, one, they have a little bit of privacy. The sun is warming up the water. And let's get cleaned up. And so now David, it's evening. He's at, on his, the roof of his palace which is probably higher than all the buildings around it because, hey, he's the king. And so he decides, hey, I'm just going to go for a stroll. No big deal. Basically, this is like the equivalent of somebody saying, hey, nobody's home and it's really late at night and I'm just going to sit here and get on the internet by myself in the dark, right? It's just not a good scene, not a good place to put yourself. But because he's put himself in this bad situation, at a time when people are bathing, and he goes to a place where he can maybe see somebody, catch a glimpse, and now he sees this woman taking a bath. I mean, this is a big temptation, right? I mean, you, you maybe, may, maybe David couldn't control this first look, but he could control what he does from there, right? He could decide, hey, I've faced temptation, now what am I going to do? And that's a lot like with us. I mean, maybe we don't always control the first thing that we see or the first thing that pops in our mind, but we could control, hey, what, what am I going to do? What gonna, am I going to do after that? Because David now, he can turn. He could just say like, oh, I'm going to go back inside. Let's get off this roof. That was probably a idea, bad idea to come out here in the first place. But he doesn't. He doesn't flee. And he just takes another step another step closer. And so he inquires about the woman, right? And, and, and previously, we see in the story of David, David inquires of the Lord. But here he's inquiring about a woman, again, just taking another step, another progression of sin. And so in verse 3, this messenger, you know, he, he asks about the woman, and, and this messenger says, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? And so this, this, the person that David's asking this question to, they're kind of on to David. Like, David, I know what you're thinking. But man, this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. Think about it, man. Don't think this is a good move. And, and, and how to, you know, listen to the people that are warning you or, or that are trying to give you good advice. Here's what it says in Proverbs 12, 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man listens to advice. I mean, how many times do we just continue down this road of making bad decisions, and then someone warns us, someone gives them advice, but we don't listen to it? I think it happens pretty often, and the reason that it happens pretty often is because in our mind, what we want to do makes total sense, because we want what we want. And we're not going to listen to anyone else. 
And so, so David, he's not going to listen to him because he's already disengaged from the Lord. He's not seeking pleasure from God. He's looking for it somewhere else. He wants pleasure, uh, just a quick pleasure. And so he's ignoring godly counsel. <clears throat> and also the messenger, when he's saying, hey, this is, this is uh, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, he's basically saying, David, you know who this is. Don't, wait a minute, don't you know who this is, David? Because Eliam, her dad, is one of David's mighty men. I mean, this is somebody, this is somebody he knows. This is somebody he hangs around with. And then Bathsheba's granddad is, is one of David's closest advisors. He's very familiar with her family. And on top of that, Uriah is also one of David's mighty men. I mean, and, and so one of David's mighty men, this is somebody that's been with David for years. Before David became king, these, these men, they joined David. They said, hey, we're going to follow you. We're going to come alongside of you. And so Uriah has literally laid down his life for David many times. Has fought for David, has bled for David. David owes Uriah his life. And this guy is saying, and that's who she is. You know this. And again, this is a time when David could stop. David could say, oh yeah, oops, my bad. I forgot this is my friend's wife. Never mind. And he could turn around. He could, he could do it. But again, David just takes a step closer. Verse 4. So David sent messengers, and he took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and he sent and told David, she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And so David uses his power, he uses his authority for his own pleasures, for, for, to get what he wants. And he sleeps with one of his closest friend's wife and then just sends her home. I mean, he just uses her to get what he wants. And we see this progression with David of sin, just like we see in the Garden of Eden. So God told Adam and Eve, hey, don't, there's this tree, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. And then Adam and Eve, they, they saw the fruit, then they, they desired the fruit, and then they took it. David saw the woman, desired the woman, took the woman. And we see this progression. David compromises being in the wrong place. He's at home, not at war. He compromises, hey, I'm going to go on the roof. I'm going to go at the time of day when everybody's out there taking a bath. And then I'll just walk around and see what I could see. And it's, he keeps making these small decisions, these small decisions that are leading this thing. And so when he gets to this like big decision to make, of course he knows what he's already going to do. Right? He, he's already been thinking about it. This, this, and we as reading this, we know that this affair didn't just like happen out of nowhere. We see what David was doing. And if you keep putting yourself in bad situations, you'll eventually make bad decisions. You don't just have an affair, right? I mean, you, you start flirting. You start fantasizing. You start, hey, let's go grab lunch and let's hang out together. You flirt a little bit more. You fantasize a little bit more. Hey, I'm going to put my hand on her shoulder or something like that. Let's have a touch. Let's have a hug. And then you have an affair, right? 
It doesn't just happen out of nowhere. It starts with these little decisions, these little compromises. And when David finally finds out, hey, this is my friend's wife, he doesn't stop there because he's already so made so many decisions to get him in the mess. He stopped seeking God, he stopped fighting sin, and he didn't flee from temptation. And some of you, right now, you're flirting with sin. Some of you, maybe it's, maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's just a girl in the dorms. Maybe you're looking at stuff on the computer. Maybe you're looking at just what everybody else has that you don't have. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Maybe you're just simply choosing to coast right now and not really pursue Jesus because you're like, well, it's not like I'm committing any big sins. And then we just see these little decisions, these little compromises, these little choices to do something or to not do something. And so how are you responding to temptation? Right? I mean, we're, we're all going to kind of face it, but how do you respond to it? How should we respond to temptation? I mean, that first thing is, is we should get out. We should flee. Run away. Turn around, David. Repent. Maybe, maybe it's talk to somebody. Hey, I'm just going to tell somebody what I'm thinking, what I'm facing. I'm going to bring it to the light. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to pretend that I'm just in control and I can do whatever I want. God has given you the power to escape any temptation that you'll face. And he's not just leaving you out there. Like he's with you in that temptation, empowering you, speaking to you, guiding you. So stop messing around. Run from it. Flee. And, and I just want to speak frankly to you. You know, if you're, if you're married or something like that and you start thinking, hey, the grass looks pretty green over there. It looks greener on the other side. That's your clue to start taking care of your own yard. Your marriage is more important than any affair. Start taking care of what God has given you to take care of. Maybe that's your marriage. Maybe that's your singleness. Maybe that's just your purity. Maybe that's the own finances that God has given you, but start taking care of what God has given you to take care of. One of the best ways to flee from temptation is to start pursuing something greater, something that's better. Your marriage, your purity. David, David, when we find David, David's bored. He's doing nothing. He's pursuing nothing of value, nothing of purpose, nothing worthwhile. And so we could flee from temptation. We could pursue something better. I'm going to pursue purity. I'm going to pursue generosity. I'm going to pursue humility. I'm going to pursue community with God's people. I'm going to pursue Jesus. It isn't that we just say no to sin, but we get to say yes to Jesus. Because God didn't just come and say, man, you guys are messed up. You just need to stop sinning, guys. Be good. God's not just telling us that. God's saying, it's not that I just want what is better for you and to not pursue these things. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you something far greater than you can ever have that this world has to offer. Pursue me. I will satisfy. I will give you life. I will give you joy. And we see this progression with David of sin. And because he keeps progressing down this uh, of sin and keep making bad decision, it leads me to the next point of he's covering up sin. Covering up sin. 
And so David, I'll just kind of summarize this. David finds out that she's pregnant. And again, David could stop. He could confess, oh man. But he doesn't. He hides it. And so he sends for Uriah. Hey, let's bring Uriah back from the battlefield. And again, I mean, this is a big ordeal. This will take time. I mean, it's not like David, you know, has got just UPS to send this email to him or anything like that or mail. Uriah's not hopping in his SUV driving over him. This is is taking a while. Hey, let's bring Uriah back. He's He's been on the battlefield for a long time. And David's got a plan. If I'll bring him back... He's been gone for a long time. His wife is here. Been gone a while. Your wife's here. Right? I mean, I mean, this plan would have worked on me, right? I mean, like, I mean, that's not in the notes or anything, but like, I mean, that, and one of them, I've been like, great, thanks, David. Yeah, I'm home from the battlefield. How you doing, Christy? What's up? Um, so this would have worked on me, but, but Uriah doesn't do it. Uriah doesn't go and sleeps with his wife, and he gives, gives David um, a couple of reasons. And he says, one, because this is strictly forbidden against God's law. A soldier that is engaged in war does not come home and sleep with his wife. And so Uriah is more concerned about doing what is right in God's eyes than concerned about his own pleasure. And also, there, there's this kind of, you know, he says like, well, there's kind of this other thing that kind of a band of brothers thing that Uriah says. Well, all the guys that I'm fighting with, you know, my boys, my team, they're still fighting. I, I just wouldn't feel right about coming home and, and kicking my feet up and, and being at home with my wife, and they don't get to experience that. And so, so Uriah, we see this, this great character from him, and so he doesn't do it. And so then again, David could stop. David can make a decision, but David doesn't. So he's, David hatches a new plan to cover up his sin. I'm going to get Uriah drunk. My judgment is already messed up. Let's see if I can mess up Uriah's. Let's get him drunk. He won't know what to do. You know, kind of tipsy. He'll go home. Bada bing. There we go. Now, now, I want you to think about this. This is David's friend, a guy who's laid down his life, and David has gotten to the point, rather than confessing it, rather than turning around, he is, I'm going to get my friend Uriah to sleep with his wife so that he thinks this kid is his rather than mine. That is messed up. I mean, that, that is pretty dark. And David's sin is producing more sin. And again, David could see, hey, Uriah is acting righteously. He's being good. Maybe I should change. Maybe I should turn around. But he doesn't. He takes, an, takes another very dark step. And so David just like, all right, my plans have, have, have failed. I'm going to send Uriah back to the battlefield. And I'm going to send a note to his commander, Joab, and just say, hey, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the heaviest. And then once it gets going, just draw back. Basically, so Uriah can die. It's a death sentence for Uriah. David's just want, wants him dead. And so David starts off with a compromise, but the ends in a corpse. Because of his sin, David tries to cover it up. He tries to hide it, just like when Adam and Eve ate, ate of the fruit. 
We've sinned. We could confess. Nope, we're going to hide. David, I've sinned. I've messed up. I could confess. Nope, I'm going to just hide. Hide from my sin. Try to cover it up. Now, again, think about this, David. Earlier in, in David's story, Saul is after David, trying to kill David. And multiple times, David spares his, his enemy's life. But here he kills his friend's life, murders him. It starts with the compromise, then David coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, he lied about it, then murder. So how do you respond to this story? I mean, when I think of this and I read this, I don't like David. I'm just like, this is messed up, man. I mean, like, you're stealing your, wife, your friend's wife, you're lying about it, she's pregnant, she's got your kid, you're trying to trick him, and then you're going to kill him? I mean, this... This is bad. And I just think, when I, when I think about David, I'm like, how could you do that? I would never do something like that. It's unthinkable. And I think that, that could, maybe you are thinking that today, and that's a danger for every single one of us, to think that we're not capable of doing any of this. Pastor Timothy Kelly says this. He says, we are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't think we are. We cannot underestimate the power of sin. This week I was reading this article by Gospel Coalition, and um, this man went out and he interviewed 246 pastors, and every single one of them had a moral failure in an adulterous relationship. And he interviewed all 246 of them, and he, he came to this, like, four kind of common characteristics amongst all these pastors of what led them down this road. First, first one was, none of them were in any kind of personal accountability. Each one of them had stopped having a daily time of prayer or reading God's Word. Where are you at? More than 80% of them sexually became or became sexually involved with someone they spent significant time with. And number four, this is the last one, every single one of them were convinced and said, this type of fall would never happen to me. This capability is in, is in all of us. I mean, this is David. God had spoken to David. This is David. In Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will, O God. And if he's capable of this, then so are we. But I mean, but what happened to David? I mean, again, two chapters ago, he's looking for somebody to show kindness to. He's sparing people's lives that have done him wrong. He's making good decisions. He's following God. What changed? Why would this happen to him? Why would it happen to us? Because we tolerate sin. Think of a seed, small, but if you just give it a little bit of time and a chance, it could grow up to be a big tree, right? And if the sin, even if it's small in your life, you give it just some time, you give it a chance, and it can affect you in very big ways. David tolerated being in the wrong place. He tolerated going onto the roof. He tolerated doing this in the evening when everyone's taking a bath. He, he tolerated looking at a naked woman. He tolerated sending for her. He tolerated that it was his friend's wife. 
He tolerated lying about it, and he ultimately tolerated killing his friend to cover up his own sin. He had stopped fighting sin. He didn't stomp it out, and it grew. John Owen says this. He said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Think back to to stranger things. And that creature from the evil, dark dimension that the guy was just like, hey, I'm going to bring it home, I'm going to live with it, and I'm going to make it my pet, and I'm going to feed it. And then it ultimately eats its cat, and it comes after him. We think that we can have these pet sins hanging around, and that everything will be okay. We just learn to live with them, right? And sin is not a pet. It isn't messing around. It will come to get you. You can't tolerate it. And when you see sin in your life, you kill it. You confess it. You bring it to the light. You pray. You repent. God, help me. And you keep doing it over and over. And none of us, none of us are sinless. If you're thinking, oh, okay, well, man, I'm, I'm the only one that's struggling. We are all struggling with something. Honestly, in too many ways, I, I really relate to David. I've looked at things that I haven't looked at, shouldn't have been looking at. I've been hanging around with people I shouldn't have been hanging around with. I've let these things, some things continue like anger, pride, to just hang around. And if you have trusted in Jesus, I want you to know something. You have the power of the living God inside of you. And he is stronger than any sin or temptation you face. He is with you. Guiding you, speaking to you, empowering you, saying, turn, turn away. Murder it. But David didn't do that, and so he, he, he murders Uriah. And so Joab, he sends a messenger to David to tell David, hey, this is what's happened. Battle didn't go so good, and Uriah's dead. And this is what David says in verse 25. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. That's David's response to find out his friend is dead. Basically, David is just saying, "Mm, you win some, you lose some. Mm, Well, this sort of stuff just kind of happens in battle. Bummer. David doesn't seem to care. And at this point in the story, this is really frustrating, right? Because, I mean, nobody's talking to David about what happened. People could kind of know, hey, this is what's going on. But nobody's saying anything to David. It seems like David has gotten away with it. He's fooled everybody. He's covered his tracks. And again, we don't like this. This is really messed up. Because Bathsheba is still pregnant. She's living in his house now. Uriah is still dead. And David is still an adulterer, liar, and murderer. And this seems pretty hopeless. I mean, where, where's, where, where's the good in this? Where, where's, where's the grace? Where's the good news? So look at the last verse, verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now this is the only time in the chapter that God is mentioned. 
David said to his messenger, hey, don't let this thing displease you. David doesn't seem to mind. But we see here, but it did displease the Lord. And why is that good? First, this is good because God isn't indifferent to our sin. God is not indifferent to sin. God is good, he is holy, and he is just. And if God didn't care about sin and was indifferent towards it, he wouldn't be good, he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be just. And God is, God is letting us know in this verse, hey, David thinks he's fooled everyone. He thinks he's gotten away with it, but he hasn't gotten away with anything, and he isn't fooling me. I'm not indifferent towards David's sin because I am holy, because I am just. And the other reason that this is good news is because God is not indifferent towards his kids. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants what is best for us. Now, I have three kids, and if I just let my kids play in the street, and I'm indifferent towards what they're doing, I don't care, hey, keep going, kids, I don't care what you're, what you're doing, it doesn't bother me, just do what you want to hit it. You know, do what you want to do. I don't really care what happens to you. I'm just going to sit here and look at my phone. Now, if I did that, you would say, Ricky, you're a terrible parent. Get off your phone, man. Angry Birds is is old news. I mean, nobody's playing it anymore, (laughs) right? You would know that that's terrible. But because I love my kids, I'm not indifferent when they play in the street. I won't just sit there on my porch. I will intervene. I can't pretend that this isn't happening. It does matter what they're doing. I can't look the other way. My kids' lives are at stake. And God, as a loving father, will not just sit on the porch while his kids play in the street. He will intervene. He will come because our lives are at stake. John 10.10 says this, the thief, the enemy, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. That is what sin does. It isn't playing around. It isn't playing games. It is robbing you. It will seek out to destroy you, to kill you. And as our loving Father, God doesn't just sit there while His kids are being robbed from and destroyed. Sin displeases God because of what it does to us. And if you're kind of reading the Bible, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you're you're not, maybe you're just kind of new to this whole Jesus thing, and you read the Bible and you think like, Man, well, I mean, God's kind of a party pooper. I mean, he really doesn't like this sin stuff, right? Well, of course doesn't like it. Of course it displeases him because God is holy. He's good. And of course he doesn't like it because he is love and he cares for his children. And God is so serious about his character, about his holiness, that he can't let David or you and I just get away with our sin. Somebody's got to pay for the wages of sin is death. There has to be some sort of punishment. And because God is so serious about his love for us, he will intervene. 
He will step in. He will run out into the street. Jesus took our punishment for sin on himself. He stepped in. He paid the price for us. In John 3, 17, it says this, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. To save you, to save me. You see, in David's story, David's the sinner. He's the one who's guilty. And Uriah, he's the one that is good. He is the one that is acting righteously. And you and I are David in this story. We're guilty. We've messed up. We're broken. But see, Jesus is Uriah. Jesus is the one who is sent to his death willingly to die to pay the price for somebody else's sin. Uriah goes and dies because David has sinned. Jesus goes and dies because we have sinned. And if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted in, trusted in Jesus as your, your Savior, I just want to speak to you. you. You've sinned. You fall short just like the rest of us, just like me. And you can't fix yourself. You can't get rid of it. You can't be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't help enough old ladies across the street. Nothing you do. You are separated from God. And you are dead in your sin. But Jesus has come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. He intervenes. He sent his son, Jesus. He has died in your place. And you can be saved from your sin to a relationship with God, not because of how good you are, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you on your behalf when you didn't deserve it. And you could just trust in Jesus today. Jesus, I've sinned. I don't know what to do. God, thank you for paying the price for my sin. My life is yours. I don't know what this is going to look like, but Jesus, I want you. You can know him today. And if, if you are somebody and you, you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then I just want to ask you a question. What is your Bathsheba? What is that something or someone that is or could be drawing you away from Jesus? What's pulling you away? And whether you're somebody that, that you read this story and you're thinking, man, I just can't relate to Dave. There's no way I would do that. Or if you're someone, maybe you're just in these early stages of compromise. Or maybe you're someone here today and you're thinking, I'm totally David. And I, I've messed up and I'm in, I'm in deep, Ricky. I just want to encourage you, turn around. Maybe it's an affair, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's anger, maybe it's greed, envy, pride, whatever it is. Stop playing with it. Stop allowing it there. Get out. Turn around. Repent. Confess to someone. Talk to a friend. Talk to your city group leader. Talk to me. Talk to somebody here on staff. Whatever it is, you are not alone. God is with you. He's with you in his power and his presence, and he's with you with his people. You are not alone. There is a way out. There is freedom, and it is found through Jesus. I just want to encourage you, too, to pursue Jesus. 
Pursue what's greater. Know that you are a child of God and that he is with you. You are in Christ. We don't have to hide like David did because we are hidden in Christ. And David is guilty in this story and we are guilty, but then because of Jesus, we are justified and God tells us you are not guilty because of what my son has done for you. And maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I would like to talk to someone. I would like to turn away from it, but I don't know. The shame, the guilt, the condemnation is eating at you. And I just want to encourage you today, because of what God has spoken to us, Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. You are not condemned in your sin. You are not condemned to do that forever. There is now no condemnation. Why? Because we are in Christ, in Jesus. The only place of freedom and life is in Jesus. And he isn't indifferent towards our sin because he is holy, he is just, he is good, and he's not indifferent towards our sin because he loves us. He loves us, kid. Loves us kids, and he has came and he has died to rescue us, to intervene on our behalf. Let's pray.